Let's pray. God, we just sang these beautiful words of our praise to you and our worship to you. And God, they line up so well with the text that we're about to look into and, and the promises that you've made to us and the authority that you've given to us and uh, you've given to Jesus or that Jesus has and that we can, that we can apply into our lives. And so I thank you for these songs and I thank you for the writers and for the worship team and the way they, they led us. And I pray that our hearts are now ready and in a place where we want to listen to hear what you have to say to us. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this morning, uh, we're going to start um, a four-part series through the book of Colossians. And uh, I want to take a little bit of a different approach uh, with um, speaking through this text, uh, through these, pa- this chapter, or these chapters. My desire is to focus on the text, and my desire is to allow the Holy Spirit to speak to us through the text. And so I want us to take a position of listening. And this is something that if you're like me, this is something that a lot of Christians struggle with. We have not learned to truly listen. And I think sometimes uh, you might be, when it comes to our relationship with God, you might be a little bit the way my relationship is with my wife. Um, Sometimes she will talk about stuff and all of a sudden she's like, Ike, I just need you to listen. I don't need you to counsel me. (laughs) I don't need you to give me advice. I need your ear. I need you to listen. Because I like to formulate my responses. Basically, you get one sentence in with me, and I'm already thinking about how to, how to help or how to respond or what to do. And I think we can be in the same place mentally when it comes to Scripture. That we hear something and immediately are like, well, what am I supposed to do with that? What am I supposed to do with that? And what I want to do throughout this entire, um, cha- this entire letter, I want us to try to not think about how we're supposed to respond or what we're supposed to do, I want us to rather discipline ourselves to truly listening to what the text is saying. So I'm going to make a statement that I hope I can stay to, but I already know I'm breaking it already in the first sermon, but I'm going to try my best to give you no application. And as a pastor, that's hard, because we're all about application. Give us a Bible verse and I'll tell you what you should do with it. But as I was preparing for this, um, just letting it marinate, um, I don't use language like this very often, but I'll tell you that I felt very, very strongly that the Holy Spirit was saying, don't tell them what to do with this. Just let them hear it. And I'm already breaking that. I'm warning you. I'm already breaking that one time today. But would you listen? What is God saying to you in this letter? What is God saying to you? Not to all of us, but to you. The Holy Spirit still speaks today. And he wants to speak to you today. But we cannot listen if we're already immediately thinking about what should I do with this, what should I do with this, or what's happening at work, or what's happening with this, and what's happening with this. So we're going to actually take, at the beginning of each sermon, we're going to take some time to prepare ourselves to listen. So, what I need you to do, I know we got kids, I know we're gathered here, a few hundred people, this is not the environment for it, but what I need you to do is just to ask the Holy Spirit to give you a quiet heart, a quiet mind, a quiet soul, 
so that you can listen. And if there's something bothering you right now, if there's something that you're struggling up against, just invite the Holy Spirit to come and to take ownership of that and to protect it. You might be saying, well, I need to deal with this. Okay, Holy Spirit, would you protect it until tomorrow when I can deal with it? Or would you protect it until the sermon is done? Because I want to take some time to listen. So let's quiet ourselves for a moment, and let's pray, and then let's read and hear what God has to say to us. So Holy Spirit, on behalf of all of us, myself included, I pray now that you would quiet our hearts, that you would give our minds peace, that we would just sense your presence, and that by being aware of your presence with us, we would also feel your spirit of peace hovering on us. Help us, God, to not focus on the words on paper, but to see that these are the living words of God, spoken to us for our ears and our hearts and our minds to hear. So we want to listen now. So we invite you to speak. Amen. So that mindset, let's start. If you have your Bibles with you, my advice to you today would be to have them open throughout this entire service. And if you don't have your Bibles with you at church, my advice to you would be bring them. I like paper. If you have your phone and you want to follow along that way, you can go to the Bible, our, our church app, I should say. And if you go to sermons and you click on English and you'll see the Colossians series and the first sermon is sitting there waiting for you and all the notes and the Bible verses are in there as well. So you can take and follow along that way. But let's take now and let's read and hear what God has to say. So we're going to read... Colossians chapter 1, all the way to verse 23. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to God's holy people in Colossae, the faithful brothers and sisters in Christ, grace and peace to you from God our Father. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Because we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love you have for all God's people. The faith and love that springs from the hope stored up for you in heaven and about which you have already heard in the true message of the gospel that has come to you. In the same way, the gospel is bearing fruit and growing throughout the whole world, just as it has been doing among you since the day you heard it and truly understood God's grace. You have learned it from Aphorus, our dear fellow servant, who is a minister, faithful minister of Christ our, on our behalf and who has also told us of your love in the Spirit. For this reason, since the day we heard about you, we have not stopped praying for you we continually ask God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all the wisdom and the understanding that the Spirit gives so that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and please him in every way, bearing fruit in every good works, growing in the knowledge of God, 
being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, so that you may have great endurance and patience, and giving joyful thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of his holy people in the kingdom of light. For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sin. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in him everything might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behaviors, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight, without blemish and free from accusation, if you continue your faith established and firm and do not move from the hope held out in the gospel. This is the gospel that you have heard and that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven and of which I, Paul, have become a servant. Amen. Well, I would love to go around the room now and let you circle up and turn to the person next to you and, and answer, what did you hear? What did you hear? What was a phrase? What was a line? What was a statement? What was something that jumped out at you? Not what is God wanting you to do with this, but what's something that you heard this morning? And so each of these sermons, I, I hope that we can take a few minutes and just listen to the text. And at the same time, I do want to give us a little bit of an overview of, of this letter. And so we're going to look today at uh, the author, and next week we'll look at you know, the purpose and, and different things like that. And so each week we're going to learn a little bit about this letter. So today, let's take a look really quickly at the author. Who wrote this letter? Now, this is pretty clear. Now, this letter was written by the Apostle Paul. And there's a lot of evidence within this letter that, that makes that clear. And, and some want to debate whether this was one of Paul's last letters or whether this was, um, you know, um, something that maybe someone else wrote on his behalf. And so there's debate around some of these things. And that's what Bible scholars do. They, they debate things. But for most, they would agree that there's a lot of evidence. There are references to some of the same people that Paul is well known to have associated with. People like Tychicus and Onesimus and Mark and Luke and there are others that he, re that he um, talks about in other, other, other books. There's also a similar style within this book that shows that this is very, very likely written by the Apostle Paul, especially if you compare it to the book of Ephesians. 
the themes covered in Colossians fit the thoughts of Paul's other writings. Paul concludes both Ephesians and Colossians by referring to how Tychicus will tell them everything. And so we recognize that this is the man who is carrying the gospel and who is bringing it to them and who is also reading it to them and very likely kind of filling in some of the blanks if people had questions about Paul and what was happening in his life. So Paul starts this letter. We believe that Paul is the one who wrote this. And Paul starts this letter very much like he does so many of his other books. It's this customary expression of his thanks to God for his readers. And by this letter, um, but in, I should say in this letter, you sense a more personal greeting. The opening sets the tone of the letter. And it introduces the themes that you're going to see throughout this letter. In, in the way that Paul does his opening, he's already reminding and he's sort of briefing us on these are some of the things that he feels the church needs to look at. The church in Colossae, as we'll look at next week when we talk about some of the details of the church, the church in Colossae is dealing with some heresies. There's beliefs that have crept in that are not biblical, that are not in line with the gospel. And so you see him talking so much about the true gospel because there is this heresy that they're, they're, they're starting to believe. But in his thanksgiving, it is noted that he isn't thanking them for personal benefits. His thanksgiving is rather um, on being thankful to God for what God is doing and what the people are allowing God to do in their church. He spells out their growth and, and that they are praying and that they are um, progressing in, in knowledge and in godly behavior. And these are the things that Paul is thanking God for. And I think it's important for us to note that Paul has never visited this church. He does not know these people on a personal level. So you can imagine for them to get a letter from someone like Paul and to hear this apostle saying things like, I am praying for you specifically, and these are the things that I am praying for, that this must have helped to bridge that relationship and to bring them and, and, and to, have them, to give them an appreciation for Paul and for his care for them. So what I want you to do now is to start in verse 3. I want you to just have your Bible open in front of you, or if you have your phone or whatever. And what we're going to try to do is not an inductive Bible study or inductive kind of, you know, kind of a sermon or an exegetical sort of approach. But what I want to do is we're going to look, I'm going to read verses, but they're not going to be back on the screen. Okay, and so we're going to read some of these verses, and you're going to just have to follow along, and then we're going to unpack really quickly. This is what these words are saying, and what are we hearing and, and what is God wanting to, to speak to us? And again, we're in a posture of listening. So in verse 3 and 4, we see that Paul is not alone in his prayer. He says, we, we always thank God. So what he does here is he is bringing in at least Timothy because in his opening, he introduces Timothy, that he speaks about Timothy. So it's very possible that he's also speaking about other people. Now he uses the word always, meaning that every single time he prays for this church, there is a sense of gratitude. He's always, whenever he prays, he's always in those prayers thanking God, which tells us that there are some amazing things that are happening within this church. 
This is an indication of how often Paul is willing to thank God when he prays for this church. They have heard of the church. Paul has heard, others have heard of the church's faith and their love for other people. Now the other thing you need to hear as you're listening to this is that faith is mentioned first, not love. Faith is mentioned first because without faith there is no Christian life. So faith lives and acts in the relationship that the people have with Christ. And they are living out that faith, and that is being expressed through their love for one another. And Paul's expression that their faith is evidence in how they love one another. And so he's telling them, and I think we need to hear this, that our faith is something that we must recognize and hear, that our faith and our relationship with God must be more important than just our behavior and changing our behavior. And so Paul is recognizing that this is, though, a church that deeply loves one another, and their love is evident in the people that are living in Colossae. It is through this love that Christians are serving one another and that these believers are, um, understand this and that they live this out. In verse 6, Paul stresses the power and the personal character of the gospel. The gospel news of Jesus has made progress. Paul says it is bearing fruit, and it is growing throughout the whole world. Now, obviously, he's not speaking here about the entire world, you know, the global world, but it is growing, and it is being experienced in the larger cities, and people are experiencing this expression of the gospel. The gospel is bearing fruit. In verse 8, 7 and 8, Paul gives a warm um, shout-out to Ephorus. Ephorus was an evangelist, and he was the one who brought the gospel to the church in, Coloss uh, in Colossae. The Colossian church received their gospel through this man. And the church had committed itself to the careful teaching of Ephorus. Now, again here, what you see is that Paul says, this is a dear fellow servant. And he does this to combat some of this heresy that's being taught. And he's saying, I want you to understand that the gospel you heard from Ephorus is a guarantee that it, because he's a fellow servant that it is the true gospel and that they can line their lives up with this gospel that Ephorus is teaching. Um, Ephorus had recently visited Paul in Rome and he had told him how the church was doing, how their community was filled with love generated by the Holy Spirit which enabled them to be a church that is helping other people. And there's something obvious here that we need to hear and recognize is that when the gospel is working among the congregation, that the church becomes a church that is serving and helping other people. And that is evident within the church in Colossae. In verses 9 to 14, Paul tells them that this news has led to his continually praying for them. And so it's not just that he's praying for them because there's so much hardship and because there's heresy and there's, there's difficulties. He is praying for them because of all this incredible work that God is doing for them. And so we're going to look now at this prayer, verses 9 to 14. This is an important prayer. And, and again, without application, I want to just say, be very familiar with this prayer. 
Because this is the kind of prayer that if you ever find yourself not knowing how to pray, this prayer in verses 9 to 14 is something that you can glean off of and it can be a tool that you can use to know how to pray for others and to pray for yourself. And in this prayer, Paul spells out the context of his prayer. He says right out, this is what I'm praying for. These are the things that I pray for always. When I pray for you, I pray with thanks, but I'm praying for you. He introduces many of the major issues within the letter. From these verses, the reader understands what Paul thinks is important, and he urges the church to respond in a positive way. To summarize Paul's prayer, he prays that, he might, that they might know God's will and have power to do it. This is not just about knowing something and doing nothing with it. He says we continually, verse 9, we continually ask God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all the wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives so that you may have a life worthy of the Lord and please him in every way. Notice, if you want, if you have your Bibles, look at verses 3 to 8 and then look at verses 9 to 14 and you're going to see this connection. There's a connection between the thanksgiving in the verses from 3 to 8, and then the intercessory prayer in verses 9 to 14. And this shows Paul's pastoral heart. He is grateful for them as a church. He is grateful for their progress, but he doesn't want them to just stay there. He is praying that they will continue to grow, that they will have a deeper understanding of God, and that by having a deeper understanding of God, they will also have a godly behavior to deal with the false teaching, to process these things that are taking root among them. And so it's important for us to see that connection. So this prayer, like I said, in verses 9 to 14, is one that many people have used over the years as a way of guiding them as they pray for themselves and they pray for others. And this brings us then to verses 15 to 23. Paul makes a significant transition here. The language changes from a prayer to this magnificent passage in praise of Christ, the the Lord of creation and reconciliation. This paragraph, especially verses 15 to 20, this paragraph is central to the theme from the verses that are going to be used in the rest of the the letter. Many biblical scholars believe that verses uh, 15 to 20 is possibly an old hymn or a common hymn that people knew. But there's debate around that. And so again, scholars, I just want to introduce you to that, that that Paul might be borrowing some material here. But regardless of what it is, what we see in these five verses is this amazing declaration and proclamation of who Jesus is. So if the Colossians already knew these words, Let's say this was a hymn or a song or a poem that they knew quite well. It's often referred to as the Christ hymn. It, um, it, uh, I can't say the word now. It, it emphasizes the centrality of their faith in Christ while also continuing to proclaim the identity that is theirs in the crucified and risen Jesus. So if you have your Bibles, look at verses 15. We're going to just walk through. The first part is 15 to 18, the first part of 18. 
And let's take a, a little bit of a closer look. And so again, I'm just going to read passages and, and, and talk about them really quickly. The first thing that we see here in this hymn or this, this, this passage is that it proclaims the absolute lordship of Jesus Christ. Look at what it says. Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. Meaning that all realms and all authorities of the, in the universe are subject then to his lordship. It says, in, in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him, and hear this, for him. There is no power, there is no dominion, there is nothing that Jesus hasn't got complete authority over, and he can use it for his glory, for his purpose. Christ's lordship is firmly established in the world. And we as a church, we gather as a community under his authority because Christ is the head of the body, the church. Meaning that we recognize his lordship over us. The second part of the hymn, verses 18, the second part of 18 to 20, it proclaims the lordship of Christ in who he is. The beginning and the firstborn from among the dead. Now that can sound a little bit, you know, what does that mean? The firstborn among the dead. This means that he is the founder of the new humanity. He is the first to be raised. He is the first to be raised to life in this victorious victory that he had over the cross. And so now when we are raised, when we give our lives to Christ, we are raised, in a sense, from death to life, and he was the first. And so... Again, this is complicated language, but it's important for us to recognize this is the lordship. This is the authority with which we, um, that, that Jesus has. So that in everything, it says, he might have supremacy. It pleased God to have in Christ all his fullness dwell in him. In Christ, God would reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven. So the centrality of his death and the resurrection proclaims that Christ has made peace in all the realms of the universe. It says, making peace through his blood shed on the cross. The sign of Christ's lordship in the world is centered. It is absolutely centered on his cross and resurrection. And this is, like I said, one of the most Christ-glorifying passages in the New Testament. Each phrase is filled with meaning. The text, as you read it, is both um, stirring and stunning. The language is amazing. Todd Still says, This poetic passage scales Christological... Can't speak today, folks, I'm sorry. Um, to a height that only few other New Testament texts um, can reach. And so I, I want to encourage us, and this is where I'm going to now break a little bit from my promise to not do application, but I want to encourage you to memorize this passage. To memorize this passage. Should you ever find yourself in a spiritual battle? Should you ever find yourself in a place where you feel darkness or you feel alone or you feel like you can't do this? Recite this passage. Say it out loud and proclaim the truth of who Jesus is. There is no place where the power of Jesus does not have authority and there is no place 
that doesn't know he has authority. There is no demon. There is no evil. There is no place in your life that you can go to where his victory and power is not already known. So in your moment, sorry, now I'm preaching, but in your moment, when you feel this weight, proclaim this, who Jesus is. Because his name is victorious no matter what the challenge. But I want to add this little side note. We can find ourselves sometimes as believers focusing, I'm going to say too much, just on what Jesus did. His death, which is amazing, which is incredible. And we must never overlook what made it so incredible is that who it was that died and rose. So my little line for you today is do not worship the cross more than you worship Jesus. Do not worship the cross more than Jesus. Many people died on the cross. And God had the power to raise anyone back to life. But this wasn't just anyone who died. This was Jesus. And so in our spiritual struggle, we do not cry out to the cross. We cry out to Jesus. He is the one who has the authority. It is Jesus who has all dominion and power. It is Jesus who has supremacy and authority. So this passage, this hymn, this poem, whatever you want to call it, gives us words to declare who Jesus is. And when you find yourself in a place where you are struggling, proclaim the name of Jesus. Proclaim the name of Jesus, because in Jesus' name there is victory. And the verses that follow and flow from this Christ hymn Verses 21 to 23, draw the hearer into the life that is present in Christ. This describes us because we, we were the ones who were alienated from God. We were the ones who were enemies. We were the ones who lived in this evil behavior. But now we are reconciled by Christ's physical body through death. Because of who Jesus was and when he died and when he rose, reconciliation was made possible. So I want you to hear something that it says here. That we were now reconciled to present us holy in His sight, without blemish and free, free from accusation. I hope you heard these words. Look at verse 22. But now He has reconciled you. I think the key word that we often overlook here is the word now. We have been reconciled now. And in the eyes of Christ, you are holy. In the eyes of Christ, you are without blemish. And in the eyes of Christ, no one is throwing any more accusations at you. Satan would want you to not know this. Satan would want you to overlook this. He would want you to continue to feel that you have to carry these accusations. These thoughts that maybe what I did was so bad. That your sin cannot be forgiven. That you are somehow disqualified. No. No. Verse 22 tells us, but now we have been reconciled. Meaning that what Jesus did on the cross, we can live in that victory already now. We do not need to only wait till we get to heaven to experience his power and his victory. And so in those moments again in your life, when you are feeling the accusations of evil, no, 
I am a re- reconciled person, and I will live in that reconciliation now as someone who is holy, who is blameless, and free from accusation. Satan, you've got nothing on me. See how hard it is to not preach application. This is what this is saying to you. So listen. Go home with it. Read it again. Listen. These words need to be heard by us, folks. Not just to go from here now and say, well, I need to change this and this and this. No, no, no. We need to hear that what Jesus did on that cross is for us today. It is for you right now. Those of you that are thinking that you somehow don't qualify, no, no, no. You qualify. Jesus has supremacy over everything. So I want to invite us. We don't have a closing song. So I want to invite you. We're going to read this hymn, this Christ hymn together. And you've already witnessed my poor reading skills today. But we're going to read this out loud together. Amen? And we're going to read this as our closing song, as our declaration together to proclaim what, who Jesus is. So would you stand with me? The words are going to be on the screen. We're going to read this nice and slowly. But let's read this together. Please try to follow along. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in Him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through Him and for Him. He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. And He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything He might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all His fullness dwell in Him, and through Him to reconcile to Himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through His blood shed on the cross. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. God bless you. Go in peace.